Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast, where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income, and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach, and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest, and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Low Rates, High Returns podcast with me, Pete Wargent. I'm here with Steve, Stephen Moriarty. Welcome. Hi, how are we all? Great to have you back on as a guest. So today we're going to talk about systematic simplicity. So an analogy that I read about, um, and I think you raised not so long ago, in a a book that I was reading, it it talked about uh, if you're building a rocket ship, obviously it needs to have enough functional parts and enough capacity to get the job done. But the more capacity you add to the rocket ship, well, every facility needs a backup facility. And to a certain extent, then the more uh, parts you have, the more things can go wrong. Yep. Uh, so there's something to be said in that for simplicity. And uh, today we're going to talk about um, systematic investing and how having a, a system that is too complex can actually be detrimental because there are too many moving parts and too many variables. So I guess uh, kiss or keep it simple stupid would be the, uh, the mantra of the, the kiss day. series yeah that's right yeah. easy to say hard to do so um, i'm just thinking back to my my own journey so um i've, I've talked about before that um i was a chartered accountant and i worked in professional practice so did a lot of auditing of uh, listed company financial statements then uh, later went on to become a group fc and a big part of what i used to do was international reporting standards and then writing these long, uh, glossy annual reports for companies. So, so it's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess my, my thought process was if I've got any kind of an edge as an investor, I was an expert in uh, Australia's transition from the old Australian reporting standards to international. So right. I guess uh, just by sheer repetition, nobody would have known much more than I did about the, the sheer tedious nature of those disclosures and how you prepare financials. So I thought if I have any kind of an edge, it must surely be in the analysis of annual reports, preparing what we call a discounted cash flow and valuing companies. But yep. obviously, it sounds good on paper, valuing a company in that way. But obviously, there's so many moving parts that it's much harder to do than it sounds. Yeah, yeah. If, if you have a look at the discounted cash flow, which is probably the most popular way to value a company, even if you set aside what you don't know about the future, which is a lot, then you add to that a, a discounted cash flow with, you know, like, I don't know, what, 20, 30 variables. And again, we talked about this in previous uh, podcasts was the idea of, you know, you've got to figure out the correlation between them then which ones are really important. And I think you and I were talking about this, you know, off camera, so to speak, about the problems with, you know, you, you pick an interest rate of 2% rather than 25 or 3 and it, you know, it blows the value from 2 bucks to a dollar. I was a believer, and I, I sort of am in some ways still about fundamental analysis, but what really influenced me was a couple of things, which was Ben Graham, 
basically moving to a simple model. And the other one more recently, 10 years ago, <laughs> was Ed Thorpe, who said, um, basically, you know, I think Ed was being polite, but was saying fundamental analysis was garbage because it, and, and, and with that intrinsic value, which I know lots of people would argue against, but, you know, if the market is inefficient, which I think we agree is, then the intrinsic value of lots of companies is going to have to, is actually going to have to be wrong. Yeah. So I suppose if, if people aren't familiar with the concept, so the, the basic idea of a discounted cash flow is that a company is essentially the present value of all, all of the, the, uh, the future income, cash flows. Yeah, the cash flows that that business generates between here and doomsday. Yep. Now, obviously, dollars that are generated 100 years into the future, um, there's a great deal of uncertainty about that. So, um, so the way that you would account for that is you make a, an estimate. Um, quite often, it's based on today's earnings. Yeah, I think you call that a guess, mate. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. Uh, oh, no, please, call it an estimate. A guesstimate, yeah. So you take today's profit, you say, well, look, that might grow by, let's say, 5 or 10% per annum, and then you, you discount those future cash flows back to today's... Yeah, the terminal value. Yeah, and it's... Um, but the problem with that is, I mean, there are so many moving parts that, yeah. uh, as you said, if, if you change the growth rate um, from, you know, 5% to 10% or from 10% to 5%, suddenly the, the valuation or the variation in, in the value that you come back to today can be absolutely all over the place. Now, I'm just trying to think of a, um, a more contemporary example. Well, let's say, for example... It's a non-linear view in that sense of, you know, like you go... And I'd find myself doing this a lot where you go, oh, 4% to 3 ah, no big deal. But then when you extrapolate it out and the impacts that it has on the other variables... As I said, your your spreadsheet value goes from you know four dollars fifty to like two bucks, and it's like oh gee, that's you know, and that's just changing one variable. And if you have a look at the interest rate predictions, hardly anybody gets it right for an extended period of time, let alone twenty years to get to a terminal value, which is in itself is a bit of a guess. Yeah, for sure. So let's say for the sake of argument, a dozen years ago or so, you decided right, I want to do. You know, consumer staples or, uh, let's say in Australia, department stores. So yeah, yeah. you were saying, right, okay, I'm going to take a look at the Maya business when it floated and it was very expensive at the float because of the, uh, the glossy brochures. Nice choice. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Still it, floating. Yeah. <laughs> it's a drift. I, I can't even remember. I think it floated at like $3 or three thirty or something like that, yep. which was at the time very expensive. It was something like 20 plus times earnings. Yep. And, you know, you could obviously see that that wasn't a, a good value at the time. But let's say, for example, you then decided, right, well, maybe I'll take a look at David Jones. You know, it seems to have growing earnings, growing revenues. Yep. So you could project those uh, figures forward and come up with some kind of discounted cash flow calculation and value the business today. Just one problem, though, you've picked a sector that's been disrupted by online retail uh, the grow the arrival of Amazon yep. and the industry uh, the sector in general department stores has just been hammered and um, so even if you chose the better of the two options you've still ended up with a bad outcome simply because the range of variables uh, you need to take into account the business's durable uh, competitive advantage what's going to happen to the sector overall you know yeah what's going to happen to future shopping trends there's yeah. so many different things that you have to actually factor in the tie it back is the point about simplicity which is you know the thing that i was i sort of always think about and i and i struggle with 
as I think some of us or a lot of us do, is perfection. And what I mean by that is, you know, like if you're a stock picker, the reality is you can go, oh, well, you know, I picked a dud stock. But it still doesn't feel, you know, it's, it's hard to be philosophical about it and go, oh, well, that's life. Um, you know, it might be after you do it for 20 or 25 years, but it still sticks in your craw a bit. And so the thing I try to think about, and the reason why that's important is because, again, with a discounted cash flow, if you actually said, all right, well, let's do the range of variables from two to 10, you know, percent. So we'll have interest rates at two and sales at two and sales at three and interest rates at four. And you look at all the combinations your valuation would go from a dollar to, you know, $35, which doesn't inform you about the value at all. So it's easier. So the argument from from my perspective is saying, okay, if I don't want to be perfect and if I generally want to get the direction, I would rather have a simple model with two or three variables like Ben Graham and say, all right, here's three variables. If you do that, you'll, you'll get it right 80% of the time. Now, you won't get it right every time, but you'll at least move forward on that. And I think that's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to do that from a portfolio perspective rather than spend hours poring over, you know, annual reports. And as everyone says, you know, oh, you've got to look in the footnotes. And it's like, well, you know, most of the stuff in the footnotes is bad news or it's shifty. So, you know, who wants to go through that procedure? Even good old Uncle Warren says, you know, he's got four filters. Basically, that's pretty, you know, that's as simple, that's as complex as it gets. And I think that we tend to think, and I think it was Charlie Munger who was saying, you know, just because you've got a computer doesn't mean you can you can generate more data and more information, but does it actually add any value? And my argument is after 20 odd years of investing, nah, it yeah. doesn't. I think it's fairly instructive, isn't it, that Ben Graham, he's written some of the longest tomes on investing, security analysis, yep. the intelligence investor that's yep. been poured over over years and decades. But actually, by the end of his investing life, it, it really distilled his um, approach down to a pretty simple approach. And that's effectively by low PE companies yeah, yeah. that are cheap. And uh, Buffett's four filters that you mentioned there. So I, I guess Buffett's the simplicity of his approach. He wants businesses that are understandable. They've got some kind of durable Mo- advantage. Yep. They have an able and trustworthy management, which is a bit of a soft filter. Pretty yeah, difficult that can thing change to, pretty quickly, I think. Yeah, and obviously the most important thing from his point of view, the margin of safety, so buying at a good yeah. price. And Ben Graham, a little bit the same. I think it might have been, was it Ben Carlson that wrote the book on why humans are drawn to complexity. We have this tendency to think, well, how can, you know, it's just a very simple approach to investing, like, for example, buying when markets are cheap and selling when they're expensive. There's a tendency to think, well, it's got to be more complex than that. Yeah, and we're kind yeah. of drawn to this idea of actually making things harder than they need to be. Uh, but being uh, keeping something simple doesn't necessarily mean that it's thoughtless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, an excellent point because I remember back to when I first started investing, you know, and I read everything and, you know, look, I, look, I could be wrong, but like most of us, I sort of went, yeah, yeah, it's Warren Buffett style. No, 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 it's uh, it's uh, Paul Tudor Jones style. No, 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 it's technical analysis. No, it's day trading. You know, so you run through a whole myriad of styles before you get to work out what you're suited to. But the other thing is too, the, and we talk about this in our, our uh, program, you know, with our clients, 
just because money is important doesn't mean that it's complex. Um, it's serious, but that doesn't mean that it's complex. And when you have a look at it, part of the, and, and it goes back, you look at all the masters of anything, whether it's tennis or golf or guitar playing or uh, martial arts or any of that sort of stuff, everyone goes through that cycle of sort of learning basically everything, but then distilling it back to a few principles. And that's what we've sort of developed with our eight principles. It would be pretty silly, I think, if we said to people, look, we've got a really simple model of investing. It's got 27 principles. It's like, oh, Jesus, you know, hang on a second. You know, so um, I don't know if you've read, <laughs> I don't know if you've read, it just reminds me of Ray Dalio's book, you know, Principles, and it's like 500 pages. I mean, you know, you sort of look at it and go, uh, okay, it's a bit hard to get a, a head around 500 pages of principles. So the idea is just trusting and we're going to talk about this at, in some future podcasts about trusting the model rather than projecting onto it the stuff you don't know, which is fine, but it may not be correct anyway. And as you said, you know, Ben Graham went from writing 880 pages in security analysis to basically writing, you know, buy low PE companies, buy a lot of them and turn them over every two years. It's like, is that it? And it's like, that's it. And it's like, okay. And it, and it works a treat. You know, he said he, he was generating returns more than 15% per annum, basically with net nets. It's just hard to believe because you sort of tend to think, like you said, ah, oh, must be must be a bit more, you know, if it was that easy, everybody would be doing it. And I, and I think a lot of people don't do it because they think it's difficult. Yeah, that makes sense. And also the quest for perfection. You've just... Uh reminded me there when I presented in London at the UBS European conference a couple of years ago and a, a guy from Macquarie came over, a fellow Aussie, and I thought, oh, you know, friendly face. And he said, oh, t check out this company, Afterpay, which is since uh, 25 bagged, I think, from the price he, <laughs> he told me about it. Of course, I didn't buy any and it's been bugging me ever since. Uh, one of the things I have learned from playing a lot of golf over the years, I, you know, I've tried all kinds of different things when I started out as a teenager you know, different grips and different, yep. you know, shapes of shots and different approaches to golf. But the more you play and over time, you realise that actually what is what makes you a better golfer is a simple, repeatable, yeah, yeah. consistent yep. um, approach and swings and, and not trying to do something different every single shot, which yep. is the tendency. You learn all this different stuff. Um, so the, the model that we use for investing, as you mentioned, is really based on eight timeless principles. So there are thought, four thought principles, which yep. you, uh, they're the four things that you need to consider before you pull the trigger on an investment. And then there are the four action principles, which are uh, essentially putting the whole uh, plan into practice. Yeah. Uh, as you said, a big part of it is it's very simple. Um, it's not overly complex and uh, it's definitely something that is repeatable. Now, you mentioned just before there an interesting point that um, computers can have a role to play. Mm. I mean, for example, um, you wouldn't want to calculate a discounted cash flow calculation without a computer and a spreadsheet to help you. Overall, would it be fair to say that computers haven't um, improved the overall level of returns for investors? Um, and is there anything we should glean from that, that particular point? You know, there's good parts to computers in the sense of you can, I mean, you know, having computing power now means anybody can look after their money. 
anybody can trade. Is that a good thing? Well, at the moment, probably not, <laughs> considering what's going on in the markets. But, uh, you know, that doesn't apply to all times. Generally, I would think that's beneficial. Secondly, I think that the benefit of computers is being able to screen stocks from a, from a quantitative point of view. So remember, you know, Buffett said that, you know, he'd read, you know, I don't know, hundreds of annual reports every year. Okay, doesn't really turn me on. Um, but now what you can do is, particularly in quantitative stuff, you can, you can screen stocks on really simple, like Ben Graham criteria. You know, uh, it's got to have a dividend yield that's four, thir uh, four thirds of the uh, bond yield. It's got to have a PE lower than 10 and it's got to have, I think it's debt to equity of 50% or something. So, you know, you can punch that into a lot of platforms these days and just get the results in like five minutes. Yeah, it gives, gives you a really good screening or starting point. So and you can finesse it, you know, to, to, what you, to what you want at the time. It's flexible, you know, so you can say, well, in this market I'll do value, in that market I'll do growth. You know, you can set it to the times. Yeah, so for, for example, in our well two strategy, if you were interested in finding some companies yep. or sectors that were cheaper, um, then it can really help to shortcut the whole process. Yeah, I suppose one of the things we discovered in the corporate world was, um, especially as accountants, there was this um, general view that well, the the internet and email and spreadsheets, well, it could almost make an accountant's job redundant because computers could do a lot of this work. It could almost automate audits and um, uh, and the, I suppose the biggest furphy of all is that the whole, uh, you know, the the IT and connectedness would make the world more efficient. Yeah, you know, we'd yeah. go to paperless offices. Yep. Uh, information would move around much more quickly. Whereas all that seems to have happened is there's much more information being pinged around. It still needs humans to actually interpret the uh, the figures. And of course, there's all the other nonsense that goes with having a computer. You get sidetracked by Crick Info yeah, yeah. or Twitter or who knows what else. And just the amount of information that what what happened was instead of, it was sort of, sort of like we got taken over by IT nerds, you know, because what happened was if you said, oh, could you make it do X? It's like, yeah, okay, we can make it do X. Then it was, could we make it do X plus Y? Well, yeah, we can do that. But part of the issue is, well, is it relevant as an input of information? You know, like, okay, but how does that really help us? And then the second part was, in terms of computers, was everybody then became sort of specialised in saying, you know, like, remember at first, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, probably 30 years ago, there was basically one way to do Microsoft Word or one program. But now there's like hundreds of different programs and you can get one built just for your company, which is okay. But again, that's led to greater complexity because now, you know, everybody's got to try and talk to everybody. It depends what customer relationship management system you got and all this sort of stuff. So it's increased the level of complexity, but the argument, as you were saying before, is has it actually added that much value? And there's probably, I think, a lot you could cut away and say in investing, you can look at 100 variables. It doesn't mean that you've priced a company better than a simple two-factor model which said, low PE, is it going to go broke? Probably not. Okay, that's it, and it's at the bottom of the market cycle. You can punch in 100 variables and go, now I know it's worth $31.50, and it's like, yeah, but when? 
Yeah, it gives an illusion of uh, precision, which isn't yeah, there, yeah. and things change, and then yeah. throws the whole thing out of kilter. So uh, models are useful, obviously, because we know they work. And I think a model, having a model to invest, it, it removes a lot of the emotion, um, because as we talked about in a previous podcast, um, we tend to have an emotional reaction when something unexpected happens. Yeah. I used the example we go to the gym every day and there's yeah. certain things we expect to see and then one day we turn up and there's a tiger. Yep. I mean, that that's when we have the emotional reaction. Same in markets. Something happens we weren't expecting and then we have an emotional reaction and that's when we make poor decisions. So having a model and having numbers to refer to can just help to remove um, some of that emotion from the process. Um, was it um, Templeton who... Uh, placed bids on certain investments before markets had actually yeah, reached yeah. that point simply because he knew that uh, when the markets were melting down, it would be very difficult to make decisions. He in, didn't have the fortitude to put the bet on. To pull the trigger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, And that's where having a model um, and a simple model can really help because generally speaking, when you start out and in investing, it's an emotional exercise. Uh, you're riding the roller coaster of emotions with the the fluctuations of the market, but the goal really is to get to a point where it's much more systematic, and you're you're not really uh, having those highs and lows of emotion. And that's where the mo- the simple model comes in. You know, you look at all the really great investors, the well-known ones. They're all systematic for a start. Um, they're all very sort of cool or calm. You know, whether the market is up or down, they're they're very circumspect. And the other thing is. What I try to do as an investor, my my job as I see it as, as an investor is to be as close to reality as possible. You don't get that by adding complexity, even though the stock market is considered a, a complex adaptive system. Yeah, it's a huge web of relationships yeah. when you think about all the, I mean, it's actually mind boggling if you get into the detail of what, what comprises a market, all the different companies, yep. all the variables impacting those companies. But I guess our job as investors is to distill that down to uh, essentially a very simple model yep. that is repeatable and we can execute without emotion. Yeah, if you, you ever think about it, the stock market can go up or it can go down. That's it. You know, it's not as if it's like a complete unknown of, you know, like, oh, my God, it could go anywhere. Well, no, it can't because it can either go up or it can go down or it can go nowhere. And that's why, you know, we talk about in our one of the principles, we talk about market cycles and using CAPE. You know, it's one lone indicator which most people, I shouldn't say most people, but there's there's a number of people who are like, you know, Cape doesn't work, you know, blah, blah, blah. Again, because they talk about perfection. They diss the, the serious arguments. They, you know, when people start dissing stuff, you know that they've, they've got a pretty lightweight argument. And I think when you look at like Cape or you look at the 200-day moving average, you know, some of these things, Ben, uh, ben Graham's things, you know, you look at them and you go, oh, surely not, you know, and but it works. Yeah, I think the uh, the CAPE ratio is a bit of an 80-20 rule to a certain extent. It's, yep. it's, a very, it's a simple measurement, but it, all it's really saying is, look, market's expensive, returns from this point over the next 10 years will probably uh, be pretty low or pretty weak yep. in nominal terms. CAPE gets cheaper, 
10-year returns from this point will be pretty good. And yeah. uh, I think, as you say, people try to discredit the idea of the CAPE ratio by saying things like, ah, oh, but if you had bought at this point, yeah, you yeah. sold at that they point. Get, they get more complex. Oh, but earnings have changed or, you know, this or that. And it's sort of like, oh, yeah. It still doesn't change the strong correlation that it has with future market returns. Mm. Or, again, CAPE doesn't tell you what you're going to get now. It doesn't tell you what you got for the last 10 years. And it doesn't tell you what you're going to get for the next three years. And that's where some people get caught up in it by saying, oh, you know, the market's gone up. You know, Kate was expensive two years ago. And it's like, okay, that's fine. But at that point, Kate was, you know, you've got another eight years to go before you can verify whether Kate was actually somewhat accurate. Um, and if you look at the history, again, if it's not CAPE, it might be the Buffett indicator, you know, market cap to GDP, uh, the Q ratio. Um, you know, there's, a, there's enough ratios out there that are really simple that investors could use rather than saying, oh, gee whiz, I've got to read, you know, 300 annual reports. My journey was based on the more I learned, the more I realised that actually you don't need to do discounted cash flows or a lot of things. You can actually just follow simple models. The hard part is explaining to somebody why a simple model works. So most people are sort of saying, oh, well, you know, that possibly can't work because it's too simple. And, that, and, and a lot of the time I think it's more about what they understand about the stock market rather than what the model actually does. So it's a, you know, a five-year investor might go, oh, you know, Cape's bullshit, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, well, tell me how much you know about Cape. You know, tell me about the arguments. And what you hear is the same arguments that everybody else spruiks. And so it's not like someone comes to the table and says, I've got a new angle. And you go, okay, yeah, now that's worth considering. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah quite often, yeah, it's the same in a lot of property or stocks or whatever, people just, they all, all but essentially Google are oh, problems with Cape Rose, yeah, 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 bang, yeah. bang, 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 and then and that's it, problem, you know, argument solved. And yeah. it's like, well, yeah, but it's that's not quite, well, you know, that's not really the point we're making. The point is uh, the dollar's invested in a, an expensive level, subpar returns over yep. the coming decades. So th there's one thing that kind of overlays on top of all this in this kind of softer indicators, and that's that there are there's certain behavioural patterns that repeat. So yep. uh, writers um, and investors like James Montier, or Montier, I should say, depending on how he prefers to how pronounce French it. You are. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Try and sound sophisticated. Um, but his uh, some of his books on value invest investing are tremendous because yeah. he, he not only looks at the numbers, but he also looks at look at these repeating behavioural patterns that yep. you see in every cycle and trying to discredit. Things you know, simple patterns and numbers is is part of the the exuberant part of the cycle where people say, "Hey, look, we've had ten great years. What are you talking yeah, about?" Yeah. And they say, "Well, yeah, that's the point." <laughs> you look at history recently. You know, nineteen ninety to two thousand was a great decade. Two thousand, when the cape was really high, to two thousand and ten was a terrible decade. 2010, when the CAPE was low, to 2020 was a great decade. Now the CAPE's really high. You sort of look at it and go, gee, kind of looks like a pattern where you wouldn't be expecting a lot. Now, most people would go, oh, mate, it's much more complex than that. And it's like, really? It doesn't seem to look like it. And most of the time you find people won't accept simplicity. They'd rather accept complexity. And I think... 
there was, I think it was one of those things, it was a cop show or something where the guy said, oh, you know, that's, you know, why didn't you believe his alibi? And the guy said, because it was just so complex, you know, like it was so well detailed, you could have, you know, you could only do that if you'd have repeated, you know, if you'd have coached yourself into that story. Because he said most people with an alibi is really simple. I was over at Bob's place. Oh, okay, well, that rules you out. But when people get to more and more complexity, it actually makes it worse, you know, and makes you more suspicious. Whereas in the stock market, we seem to have this idea that if you don't know about money, then you've got to hand, you know, you've got to pay someone else to manage your own money. Whereas if you've got one or two variables, like we sort of show people, plug, um, it's a bit sort of like, well, you know, it's it's not that hard. Yeah, it's interesting actually. Uh, my my wife, as you know, Heather from is from a farming background, and uh, she was a finance manager at Grain Corp a number of years. And uh, there's a lot of um, when it comes to things like, uh, for example, weather patterns. You can have the most complex model in yeah. the whole world. But you go and speak to a farmer and they'll probably say, well, we had a decade of drought and yep. then that was followed by a decade of rain. And, <laughs> and we're that, going back for a decade yeah. of drought. <laughs> and you, you, may, uh, you, could, you could easily dismiss such a simplistic point of view uh, and yet you probably find that just as often as not they would be more accurate than the people with Absolutely. the massively complex models. There was also a great uh, motivational speaker in the US called uh, Jim Rohn and he tied in the behavioural patterns and he said, look, do you want to know what's going to happen in the 1980s? And people are like, yeah, yeah, tell us. And he said, well, it's going to be exactly the same as in the 1970s, the 1960s. There'll be uh, challenges mixed with opportunity. And yep. then what we're going to get is a summer season followed by a winter season. Now, obviously, the timings are difficult to predict sometimes, but it's yep. exactly the same in stocks. You get a summer season, as you mentioned, yep. uh, usually uh, denoted by a low cape ratio. And then you get a winter season, usually denoted... By a high, denoted, a high I should say, by a high cape ratio. And I think, um, to, to I guess, to wrap up on today, so we, we use a, a very simple model called the eight timeless principles. There are others that you can use. I think a really important lesson to learn from Ben Graham and Warren Buffett and investors like that, those are supremely intelligent human beings. And yet, in the end, what they've come down to is a relatively simple system yep. for just disseminating all of those complex web of relationships and just into a very simple model. And in Ben Graham's case in particular, as you mentioned, he could write an 800-page book on security analysis, but uh, by the time he finished up... <laughs> Settle for a two-page briefing, though. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. My stocks. <laughs> and uh, there's uh, probably a salient lesson in that <laughs> for all of us. Uh, so uh, s- systematic simplicity, things, uh, the CAPE ratio is simple and effective. It's a bit of the, the 80-20 rule, but uh, that's why we use the eight timeless principles. It's repeatable and simple, effective and proven to work in all market cycles. So that's it for today. Thanks for joining. Hope you enjoyed it. And we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Cheers. See you next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter, so do reach out and connect with us. 
And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers. Cheers.